Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. We'll begin in verse 1. Genesis 49 verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who set apart, who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking that you would speak to us through your word. 
Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things. Instruct our hearts. Convict us of sin. Strengthen our faith. And give us great hope in who you are, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm not sure when it actually became uh, fashionable. It seems like it was about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, when I noticed uh, people were responding to the question of, how are you with, I'm blessed. I don't know if it's said as much now. I hear it from time to time. I have no problem with that response, depending on what you mean by it. Because what I noticed over time is that when people use that, it became synonymous with material blessings. It became a bumper sticker on the back of luxury sedans and vanity plates. It became a hashtag on social media posts about luxurious vacations and sports stars and athletes and uh, famous people. What's the word? Celebrities. There we go. Uh, started using it. They, you would hear it you know, when they accomplished something. Oh, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And so I think that that word, even though it may have had great origin, became something to mean getting the good stuff, life going my way. Uh, almost the idea of I've been lucky as a human would think of that. And so if by that that's what you mean, well, I think most of us know those things are fleeting, aren't they? How quickly they can change, how quickly they can fade away, how quickly they can disappear. But if you mean that we have been blessed in Christ in the heavenly realms, what we read in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If that's what you mean, I think it's a great way to respond to people. We know that every good gift comes from our Father above. And he has given us many good things for which to be thankful for, including many earthly material things that we enjoy and should be thankful for. Jesus also had some very specific things to say about putting our hope in earthly things. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, our blessedness is not found in things that disappear, not found in things that are eaten by the moth or destroyed by rust or just disappear over time. The blessings that matter are the blessings that will last beyond this life are those that are found in Christ Jesus, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. But I have to confess that when I heard this as a young person, and sometimes even to this very day, I struggle with that. Because as a young person, that sounded incredibly boring to me. So I wanted nice things. I wanted to enjoy good things. I wanted to taste. And I never understood. I knew I was supposed to be happy with the heavenly blessings, but I just didn't feel it. It sounded boring. Heaven sounded boring. Until a dear friend, the man who discipled me, said this, Uh, in a sense, I don't remember his exact words, but he explained it. He said, in essence, all these things are counterfeits. 
They're not the real thing. They're things that we can enjoy and be thankful for. But whatever it is that you think you want, whatever it is that you think that you're dying to experience that you haven't experienced yet, heaven is better. Heaven is better. Whatever the blessings are that are in the heavenly places, and certainly they are dealing with sin and death because without dealing with that, we could never taste heaven. But whatever awaits us, whatever is there in the new heavens and the new earth, it is better. Better than we can imagine. Better than we could comprehend. And so when we think of our blessedness, it's good to remember that it means better. Better than anything we've tasted in this life. A question that comes up, though, is about our own worth, because so often we find our worth in our sense of blessedness. Now, we know the correct answer to this question, do we find our worth in our blessedness? We know that we don't, in the sense that if we're talking about blessedness being our circumstances, but if we mean by that blessedness what we've read in Ephesians 1, then yes, our blessedness is found not in our circumstances, but in the one, the source of all blessing, the one who is worthy in Christ himself. See, when life doesn't go as we want, as we expect, when we do experience suffering, when we are sinned against, when we do know injustice, when we sin ourselves and the effects of our own sin lingers on, we question what God is up to. We don't feel blessed. And so it affects our identity And we have to come back and remind ourselves that our identity is not found in our circumstances. In this chapter of Genesis, we read the pronouncement of Jacob over his sons, blessing them as he comes to the end of his life. But as we read through chapter 49 this morning, did you feel like all of those things were blessings? No. They sound like a mixed bag, don't they? There's some harsh stuff in there. Some of it sounded really good, but some of it sounded like, no thanks. I wouldn't care for that. In fact, we use the term anti-blessings. We've talked about this before, blessings of God that sound like they're not blessings. They sound bad. They sound like curses. And as we have seen through our study of Genesis, in this list of patriarchs here, there are none righteous, just as we are not righteous. None of these have merited anything any more than we have been worthy of anything. And so what these brothers needed, and what's here in this passage, if we look, and hopefully we'll see this, is the same thing that you and I need. We need not to be uh, worthy in any sense of our accomplishments or our own self-righteousness. We need to be found in the one, the only one who is worthy, through whom we can know true blessing and in particular, who will redeem us from our sins. The book of Genesis starts out with the story of creation and God's blessing over that. Of course, we know that after he pronounced the blessing over that, shortly after sin entered the world and it altered everything, the relationship between the creator and man was changed. It was severed, shattered. And so from that point on, the hope that is seen in Genesis 3.15 makes it clear there was a need for restoration, a need for redemption. And that would come from the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so just as Genesis begins with blessing, now as we come to the end of Genesis, it ends with these blessings as well. And as we see, it's not just blessings on these particular young men, but it's blessings on their descendants. 
In fact, some of these things that are going to be, that are being foretold in the blessings will not occur for hundreds of years. So these are blessings pronounced not just on the brothers themselves, but on the tribes of Israel. All of the good, all of the bad, all of the ugly, God would work sovereignly according to his will in great harmony to bring about the blessing that he promised, ultimately through the one who is alone worthy. And then when we come to the end of the scriptures, as we read together this morning in Revelation 5.12, we see a picture of the one who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the one who is worthy. This is the one who fulfills ultimately these promises and the one in whom we hope. And so beginning in verse 1, we see that Jacob calls his sons together saying, Gather yourselves that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. It doesn't sound like blessing announcements, does it? It sounds more like I'm going to tell you what's about to come. Well, it's both and. These blessings are prophetic, as we'll see. But by the end of the list of blessings in verse 28, we see that they are indeed blessings, that the narrator adds that to the mix. This is what is actually happening. But they have this prophetic uh, outlook as well. Again, not happening in the immediate future necessarily. Much of what is about to happen in these prophecies would happen hundreds of years later. It's helpful to keep in mind as we think about these blessings that they are all by the grace of God, all according to his grace. Again, the stuff that sounds like blessings and the stuff that doesn't sound like blessings. And this is important for us to remember as well. We, we like to think of grace as being the good stuff that we get. And we don't like to think of grace as being the stuff that we find unpleasant. But grace includes all of God's good work to us. Through his providential working through suffering, that's an act of grace. Through his correction, it's an act of grace. And through the redeeming work of even our sinful actions is an act of grace. It means that at times grace can be painful. Grace isn't always pleasant. God's grace works not only through the good things we experience, but also through tragedies and the restoration of those tragedies. We know and experience God's grace in His law. His law is good. It's perfect. We celebrate and enjoy God's law, but it also shows us our sin, doesn't it? And is that ever pleasant? (laughs) Rarely. We see God's grace in His providences, good and bad, and we see God's grace in His discipline, some of which we see here in these blessings pronounced over His Son. Sons, Bruce Waltke writes, what the narrator calls blessings are often anti-blessings, such as in the case of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. However, in terms of the nation's destiny, these anti-blessings are a blessing. By demoting Reuben, Jacob saves Israel from reckless leadership. Likewise, by cursing the cruelty of Simeon and Levi, he restricts their cruel rashness from dominating See, the boys may not have felt like they were blessings, but God was indeed blessing his people through this corrective act. Now, the blessings are written in the form of a poem. It's the longest in the book of Genesis. It's organized not just according to their birth order, but by their mothers. So we start with Leah, then Bilhah, Zilpah, and finally Rachel. And right in the middle of the poem, we have what is called the center line. It's in verse 18. 
It kind of sticks out because it doesn't go with the flow of things. Jacob simply says in prayer, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The center line of the poem was was a poetic device to mark something significant. And here his prayer points that the answer is not found in the sons. The answer is not found in the nation of Israel. The answer is found alone in the God of their salvation. And it will come in spite of the many failures of his people. His blessing comes to them and to us as it always does, by grace alone, through faith alone. One thing that stands out is that there is an emphasis on two of the sons. If we were counting up the verses, there's about 25 here. Ten of the 25 verses focus on two sons. Five verses each are given to Judah and Joseph, and so we'll put most of our attention on them. But I do want to point out what the anti-blessings look like. We could take the time to go through each son and what the the forecast was. Um, I've decided not to do that through the whole passage, just to give us a little bit of a taste so that we can spend more time on the promises given to Judah and to Joseph. But let's look first with Reuben, the oldest, along with Simeon and Levi. They're each uh, the recipients of what we call these anti-blessings. You see this as Reuben, as he starts out with Reuben, he kind of sings his praises. You're my firstborn, you're my might. And then he lays it down in verse 4. You're as unstable as water. Wow. And that's like when your brother, if you had an older brother, comes up and knees you in the back of the knee and, you know, you fall over. I mean, that's it just had to be a moment like that. Uh, I can see the ones who had older brothers and the ones who didn't by the ones who smiled at that. Um, I had an older brother. It had to just be gut-wrenching for Reuben. Unstable as water. Preeminence you will not have. What he thought was his according to human tradition and according to all that they knew would not be his. He had shown his character and the discipline of that was found in this blessing that was pronounced over them. He can't be trusted. And now his descendants would not know the greatness that would have been theirs according to human tradition. Likewise, Simeon and Levi, they're held accountable for their treachery against the Shechemites. You remember the story in Genesis 34? It's referred to here in verse 6, for in their anger they killed men. They went to town and they wiped out Shechem. And so God divided and scattered them in Israel. Now, what's interesting among these two, what he, he, he links them together as brothers. Of course, they're all brothers, but he links them together in this act. And indeed, Simeon and Levi were both scattered. But Simeon, in his being scattered, kind of just disappears. He becomes obscure in the history of Israel. There's not a whole lot about him. That's not true of Levi, is it? Levi would become the tribe of priests, Here, Levi's future, even though he is scattered and divided, would be transformed by the grace of God. In fact, God would sovereignly use the scattering of the tribe of Levi to spread out that priestly role. By them not having any land of their own where they would congregate, God spread them out to serve as priests among all of the peoples. A testimony of God's grace to show mercy to whom he will show mercy to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And in verse 8, we get to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. We've already seen Judah emerge as a leader among his brothers through his actions. And this continues this trend. 
Jacob announces this praise. Your brothers will praise you. This is one of the many word plays in the poem. Again, because this is a poem, there are a lot of poetic devices, things that we can't, uh, they're a little more difficult to appreciate in English. Uh, but this is kind of a play on Judah's own name. Judah's name, that when, when he was born, his mother says, uh, I will name him Judah this time. I will praise Yahweh. And so Judah's part of the, the root of his name means praise. And so here his father is using part of his name as a wordplay here and saying that his brothers would praise him. He will demonstrate power over his enemies, particularly as God appoints the tribe of Judah to lead in the conquest of Canaan. But we could think even further down through history, a descendant of Judah, King David, who would also conquer many of his enemies. But ultimately, we can't help but think of the Messiah, the descendant of Judah, who will defeat all of his and all of our enemies. In verse 9, he's portrayed as a lion. This is where, this is the first time we see this image painted, the line of Judah. The picture of the line of Judah, this is where it begins. Clearly a messianic reference, a symbol of his kingly rule that would come through the line of Judah. And we certainly see that. But the messianic imagery increases as we go through each of these verses. In verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. As with most prophecies, there are often layers to the prophecies, things that they're fulfilled uh, at a future date, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment later. That's certainly true with this one. The scepter pointing to Judah's leadership among the nations. Judah would become a leader. But the focus sharpens even more when we think of King David, who is still to this day considered the great king uh, for Jews. The ruling scepter and the staff that would be the mark of this great king was certainly true in the time of David's dominion where the surrounding people would be ultimately subjugated to his earthly reign. There was a great time of peace uh, in the later years of David. But the focus of this prophecy sharpens even more when we look further down through redemptive history and we see the descendant, the Messiah, Jesus. This is the ultimate meaning of this, that when tribute comes to King Jesus following his death and resurrection, It's what the prophet Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 45. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Yes, that's Isaiah. It reminds us more of Philippians where that same idea is paraphrased where we read in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see how the prophecy works. And as it continues to unfold, the meaning becomes clearer and clearer. What was here in seed form. They had no, they, they, there was, I don't even know that Jacob understood all that he was saying by the, by the, the, the inspiration of God in, this, in these blessings over his sons. He had no idea all that this would mean. But as we look through Scripture, through Isaiah, through Philippians, it becomes clearer and clearer that King Jesus is the Lion of Judah who will defeat all of his and our enemies, whose scepter and rod will never depart from between his feet, and to whom all people shall confess that he is Lord of all in obedience. And then we get to verses 11 and 12, and we kind of scratch our heads. What is all of this about a foal and a donkey and choice vines and and washing clothes and wine? 
Well, this is a picture of lavish abundance of the kingdom. This is looking further ahead to a time even ahead of us, a time further down the road. Derek Kidner writes, Every line of these two verses speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. It is the golden age of the coming one whose universal rule was glimpsed in verse 10. It is deliberately the language of excess. The reveler of verse 12 is startling enough, but verse 11 has already thrown care and thrift to the winds. With its talk of vines used as hitching posts and wine as washing water, in its own material terms it bids adieu to the pinched regime of thorns and sweat for the shout of them that triumph, the song of them that feast. And Jesus announced the age to come in just this imagery in his first miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. You see... You would never tie your donkey to the good vine where the good grapes grow for your wine. Why? Because the donkey would eat them. You didn't want to waste them. But when you have so much, you would never wash your clothes in wine. It sounds absurd. But when you have so much, that's the picture here. I can't remember the character's name. It, was, it wasn't Donald Duck, but the, his uncle that, that slept on the gold coins or, or whatever. Scrooge. Okay, see, I couldn't even pull that out of my memory. That's the image here. It's the sleeping on the gold coins. It's the taking the $100 bills to light your fireplace with. It's this incredible, ludicrous abundance. And so when we fast forward to that wedding in Cana and we see Jesus take those pots of washing water at his first miracle and he turns them into the finest wine that was served at the wedding... He is pointing to such a time of incredible abundance and feasting in the new heavens and the new earth. This descendant of Judah would come according to these blessings of Jacob and his scepter shall never depart from his hand. Let's skip down then to verse 22 where we see the blessings pronounced on Joseph. We know Joseph's story very well. He is a fruitful bough, a branch that runs over the wall. We have certainly seen this in the latter part, the majority part of his life. Yes, he suffered, but God has made him fruitful. Another word play here. Ephraim, his son, which means God has made me fruitful. Genesis 41. Jacob's using the same root word here to say that Joseph's descendants will be fruitful. He had endured a number of attacks Harassment that was severe, verse 23 points this out, but God saved him, it says, keeping him unmoved, making his arms agile by the hands of the mighty one. It's a look back of seeing the God who has faithfully been with him, faithfully cared for him, faithfully led him through the attacks, through the false accusation, through the imprisonment, through slavery and all that went with it. It was God alone, his shepherd and the stone of Israel who helped and will continue to deliver. And then verse 25 begins the forward look, the blessings that would come. And there's the general blessings of God's presence. There are the specific, the land blessings, the above and below, the fertility, the water from above and below, the fertility of the womb. Joseph's descendants would grow in keeping with the promises given to Abraham that there would be many descendants. And all of this is given to Joseph to remind him and the other brothers as well that the blessings are coming and will be beyond their wildest imagination. Joseph's already seen this. He's witnessed God's goodness and lifting him up as the leader in Egypt. But even as we look forward to the descendants of Ephraim, even Manasseh, even though Ephraim was elevated above Manasseh, both became fruitful 
and prosperous and influenced and led their brothers. Both Gideon and Joshua were descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so when we come to the end of the, the, the section here in verse 28, uh, we see this announcement of these were blessings. Yes, they were blessings. Some of them may not have sounded like blessings, but the narrator does this kind of bending over backwards to make it make it clear that these are blessings. He repeats the word for blessings three times in verse 28, that this is what's going on, highlighting that God is sovereignly working, again, through the good, the bad, and the ugly, to work all things according to his purposes and his will. But the light shines most brightly, doesn't it, through the descendants of Judah, the one who is to come, that he will reign forever and ever, and his scepter shall never depart from his hand, nor his staff from between his feet. This is what makes our hearts glad. It's interesting to consider the other blessings and the things that happened in the coming years as they conquered Canaan. But when we read the Lion of Judah... We are made glad because we're in this period now, this now and not yet, in this period of waiting where he has come and he has dealt the death blow to sin through his death and resurrection. But we wait his return when he will consummate all things, a time when we will see the obedience of all people as every, uh, everyone confesses his name in bowing of the knee. So the blessings of God for Jacob for his sons, throughout all periods of history, and throughout our time, even now, are all by God's grace. None of us are worthy to receive his blessings. They are all bestowed upon us according to his great love for us. And while we're not worthy to merit these blessings, it is through these blessings that we receive worth the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what Ephesians 1 is telling us about when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. His worth, the only one who is worthy, makes us worthy by that imputed righteousness so that we can stand before God. And then when we fast forward, as we read some of Revelation, well, we read all of Revelation 5 this morning. Let me read some of it again. In verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then in verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, the picture of hope and salvation is the same. God would send a redeemer, one who is worthy, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And that redeemer has come. And when he came, before he was crucified... He sat before his disciples and he took wine and he took bread and he broke it to share with them. And he's given us this table as well. It's a foretaste of this lavish kingdom that is to come. The abundance that is beyond our imagination. Better than we can ever imagine. 
See, Jesus has tied his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And today he has set before us the bread and wine of his supper. And he calls us to come and eat, to remember, to come and to be fed from his body broken for us. And this is blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of our sins. And coming, we celebrate and we profess our faith in God who did all that he covenanted to do. We come remembering the cost of our Savior's death in atoning for our sins. And we come being nourished by His Spirit's present work in our lives, confessing our utter dependence upon Him. And so let us come to the table with considerable joy, with deep repentance, and with great expectation of all that is ours in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see the blessedness that is ours in Christ? Lord, we're so easily distracted by the things that we want in this life to think that they can bring true happiness, true pleasure, true contentment. Lord, help us to see all that is ours in Jesus and that what awaits us in the new kingdom is beyond our comprehension better than we can imagine? Would you cause our hearts to change so that we would not put our effort into laying up treasure in this world, but instead that we would lay up treasure in heaven? That we would put our energy, our effort, our resources into that which has eternal value? Lord, it's hard for us to think this way. It's hard for us to do this. It's hard for us to know and understand what this looks like at times. Give us eyes to see and give us understanding to know how to live in a way that makes an eternal difference. Would you give us a heart for those who don't know you? Would you give us understanding that we might answer the questions that come our way when we're we're posed. When people ask us, what, what is this hope that you have? Would you give us wisdom to speak of the hope that's within us? Lord, would you give us a demonstrable hope even when we are so distracted by things that happen in this world and the things that have happened in 2020 that kind of etch away that hope? Would you restore our hope in the one who is worthy, who has tied his foal to the grapevines and washed his clothes in wine, who is bringing an abundance that will, again, be beyond what we can ask or imagine. Help us to see the hope of heaven. Help us to know the realness of our salvation. And may we live that out in glory to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.